This is Radio Siams, a podcast of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. Our mission? To probe the critical debates in archaeology in conversation between leading practitioners and the next generation of researchers. On September 21st, 2018, archaeologist Jordan Pickett of the University of Georgia met with a panel of SIAM students and faculty to discuss the use of architectural energetics in archaeology. It's time to think things over. Stay tuned for Radio SIAMS. Hello, and welcome to an episode of the SIAMS podcast. My name is Benjamin Anderson. I teach the history of art here at Cornell. And our guest today is Jordan Pickett, who is an assistant professor of classics at the University of Georgia. Yesterday afternoon, Jordan gave a lecture on the history of the study of architectural energetics. And today we're looking at a couple of case studies that Jordan has offered of his own work in architectural energetics. The first was published in the Journal of Archaeological Science in 2016 with co-authors John Schreck, Renata Holland, Yuri Rasimakin, Alexander Helenko, and Warren Woodfin. The title of this article is Architectural Energetics for Tumuli Construction, the Case of the Medieval Chungul Kurgan on the Eurasian Steppe. Jordan has also shared with us a draft chapter from a forthcoming edited volume. Uh, the editors of that volume are Kostis Karelis and Bill Carraher. Uh, the title of the volume is Beyond Icons, Theory and Methods in Byzantine Archaeology. We looked at a draft chapter by Jordan on energetics and economies of construction in the Byzantine world. If people are interested in accessing that, you'll find the same draft on Jordan's academia site. I'll begin with a very general question, since the people listening will mostly not have been at the lecture yesterday afternoon. Jordan, could you provide a brief introduction to the concept of architectural energetics and of your own engagement with this particular methodology? Sure. Uh, thanks, Ben. Uh, it's really a pleasure to be here uh, for the Siams podcast and to have participated uh, uh, and, you know, as the first speaker uh, in what looks to be a great series on the archaeology of labor here at Cornell this year. Um, so, yeah, I can say a little bit about what architectural energetics is and uh, why I've been interested in it. So architectural energetics was conceived uh, as a tool by archaeologists in the 1960s. And as I talked about yesterday, it actually has a much longer history um, that if you would like, you could extend back um, even to Lavoisier at the end of the 18th century, who was interested in how uh, uh, energy was transformed uh, between different states, uh, but uh, has roots also uh, uh, in uh, economics and ecology from the end of the 19th century. So anyways, in the 1960s, archeologists were interested in trying to use architecture um, to understand uh, energy transactions in societies and as really as a tool for how to study cultural complexity and hierarchies and patterns with architecture. And so um, in the 1990s, probably the most prominent kind of proponent of architectural energetics, Elliot Abrams defined it as quote, a method through which buildings or building episodes are quantified in terms of human time labor costs and upon which comparative assessments of power or status within and among historical societies are based. So basically the idea is that time labor costs can be calculated, time labor costs for building 
can be calculated by dividing the volumes of building materials, the component volumes of uh, structures themselves with rates of time that are attested in a number of sources. So we have a lot of um, building and artisanal manuals, actually like dozens of them from uh, all over Europe, North America, and, uh, and also uh, from UNESCO, or pardon me, not UNESCO, uh, but various UN organizations in the 1950s and 60s that were interested in agricultural labor, especially, um, as well as experimental archeology, span which has proven to be uh, lately, uh, really a rich source of information uh, about historical activities. So anyways, we can divide, right, hypothetically volumes, um, types of materials in their quantities um, by these uh, time labor rates to give a person day total uh, for the various processes in construction. And we can break these down and be fairly specific, right, about types of tasks um, and how they uh, interacted with uh, parts of the landscape. So we're really thinking about building as a human environmental process, right, that requires materials to be gathered from across landscapes to be processed in different ways, uh, like with stone, right, you would shape blocks of ashlars, things like this, um, or you would bake um, fire clay to make bricks. Um, and that these are then transported to a site of labor and are constructed, um, are built into a structure, right, uh, over periods of time. And all of these processes, right, are um, kind of negotiated by um, environmental constraints and so, and by physiological constraints of human bodies that can only interact with materials, you know, with so much intensity. Um, and so it's just kind of, you know, trying to think about uh, the constraints and conditions under which building occurs in different historical societies. And we can see too that, as I talked about yesterday, that um, all of these processes were really revolutionized. Building itself was revolutionized by 19th century industrialization. So kind of a key point of energetics is that pre-industrial societies have a lot of differences, obviously, uh, but that physiologically the human capacity for work was broadly stable in pre-industrial societies and was accelerated exponentially, right, by various industrial technologies. So energetics is a way of thinking about the building process as a, a laborious human process that engages with materials and environments in ways that can be quantified to tell us uh, about the structure and organization, not just of the building process, but potentially also of societies themselves. Um, if I could just say briefly about my own um, involvement with energetics. So I grew up in a part of Southern Indiana um, that is limestone country and also coal country as it happens. And I have a lot of family that worked uh, in limestone quarries and uh, also sandstone in Park County, um, the Mansfield Stone Foundation, a stone formation. And so I spent a lot of time growing up, you know, seeing the, the environmental effects of monumental construction and, um, you know, the seeing labor and just how labor worked and people's work and the investment that was required to extract materials and climbing around on blocks, right? Um, limestone and going swimming in limestone quarries uh, in Southern Indiana. And so I guess I've just, I've always thought about, um, you know, the relationship 
um, between people, the environment, and, and monumental architecture. So, yeah, so that's kind of my relationship to it. It's actually funny how scholarship sometimes can be um, personal in ways that you don't necessarily anticipate. Thanks, Jordan. Hi, um, my name is Jessica Plant. I'm a PhD student in the art history department, and my interests intersect with craft neighborhoods and socioeconomic networks in the late Roman Eastern Mediterranean. Um, thanks for a great talk yesterday and for talking with us this morning as well. I want to follow up on Ben's question and from some of our discussion yesterday on the um, nature of energetics and its history. And one of the things that we talked about, and you just explained to us, um, uh, is that energetics interrogates building and building episodes. And in this analysis, buildings often become the unit of analysis. And so one of the things that you identified in one of your, in your papers, and um, we talked about yesterday in your lecture, is that this idea of maintenance and renovation and modification of buildings and building complexes becomes an issue for energetics, the study of energetics, and even sounds like your own experience in Indiana, like watching the continuity of labor um, is something that's difficult to factor in. So I'm wondering if you can just elaborate on appropriate methods for complementing the study of energetics um, in the issue of maintenance and modification. That's a great question. So yeah, um, in a famous article, um, really seminal article of 1989 in the Journal of Archaeological Method and Theory, Elliot Abrams, who's a professor at The Ohio University and an anthropologist who's worked on a lot of these issues. Um, and again, I should emphasize, I think I left out in my previous answer, right, that energetics is a method that really developed uh, uh, with New World archaeology and um, has a lot of applications in the Mediterranean um, that uh, um, can be explored uh, further. And in this article, uh, uh, Architecture and Energy of 1989, uh, Abrams identifies maintenance um, as one of the primary limitations uh, of energetics in that we can um, account for the primary uh, phases of monumental construction um, uh, through uh, with this method. But the you know subsequent uh, phases of life histories are much more difficult to reconstruct. And so, and I agree, I think that that is a limitation. In my own work, um, so actually the first building that I did models for uh, as part of my master's thesis at the University of Pennsylvania was with Bob Osterhout and um, was a church that he had published and studied um, and surveyed in the 90s, the Chamlachilise. And there you do have multiple phases of additions to the building. And because the, the phased changes to the Chamlachili State was the addition of a what's called a paraclesion, basically a side chapel on the north side of the building. Um, because that was an addition, we could account for that energetically. And we could see that the addition of that, of that side chapel was really a very minimal investment um, uh, as compared to the main building, which itself, even as we were interested to learn, probably wasn't that labor intensive. Um, so in this case, when you have a phase change to a building that's an addition, we can account for that pretty readily. Contractions of buildings, on the other hand, 
may be more difficult. As uh, I talked about yesterday, there is an article by Ben Russell, who's a student of uh, uh, the Roman uh, economy in stone, uh, especially in marble. I will add right now that there is a lot to be done with uh, limestone, sand salt, sandstone, and basalt. Um, marble is, I think, overrepresented in kind of Mediterranean stone studies. In any case, Russell, uh, who is a student of Janet Delane, who did a famous study of the beds of Caracalla, has investigated um, labor rates from 19th century sources concerned with demolition. And these uh, have applications for spolia studies, for instance, um, but um, could also be applied to um, kind of understanding, you know, phase changes of buildings. Um, as I said, um, there are a lot of Mediterranean applications for energetics, which I think is kind of an underused methodology that uh, could, could be time for a comeback, maybe, um, and studies of maintenance and kind of life histories, which is certainly, I'm very, in my regular job, I do kind of environmental history of late antiquity in the Roman world, and I'm very much interested in the long durée histories of structures. And this is something that I think um, we, we have some tools from, um, again, we can understand additions of building, contractions possibly from rates associated with demolition activities, but this is something that needs more work. Thank you. Hi, um, thanks for your talk. I really enjoyed it. Um, I'm Kathleen Farland, by the way. I'm in the Department of Classics, a PhD student at my interests are in the Eastern Mediterranean and the Hellenistic and Roman periods, and particularly um, the economies of, of the Eastern Mediterranean. Um, right, well, uh, I'm gonna start my question again. <laughs> yeah, um, so I think you're, you're really clear um, in your papers and in your talk that um, energetics uh, provides a really good way of getting at models of, of the possible, you know, um, given enough time, given this many uh, workers, what can you achieve, as opposed to, you know, this is how this happened, right? Um, and I'm really interested in the uh, potential for a sort of marriage of a processual approach and a post-processual approach, right? So I guess the question is, how how do we get at a sort of a more specific um, answer to what the sort of uh, cultural attitudes towards labor were and, and how that can inform how we actually do build these more specific narratives of, of what's happening at, at any given site. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I will, I'll say, um, I'm also very interested in um, kind of the marriage of processual and post-processual approaches. I think that we can use, we can make models, we can use models um, as again, kind of ways of constraining the possible of understanding a range of conditions in which events or activities may have likely occurred given you know, the establishment of certain um, standards or factors um, and conditions. And so um, as, uh, so I think, yes, we can, we can use energetics to get at some of these questions. I think the Chungul Kurgan example um, uh, is maybe, you know, kind of one case study uh, for this. 
in terms of thinking about cultural attitudes uh, to labor. So in the case of the Chungo Kurgan, we're dealing with the Kipchak, um, which is a, a tribal confederation on the Eurasian steppe, really in the area of modern Ukraine. Um, and we have absolute, an absolute paucity of written sources um, concerning this culture. Um, and however, we have their monuments, right? Their monuments survive as a source that can potentially be read. Um, and so in this case, um, from marks, um, markings in the earth as excavated, right? We were able to reconstruct some of the tool sets that were used and with energetics to understand um, the, uh, 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 the phases of ritual in relation to labor, which I think is actually quite extraordinary to understand um, potentially the range of um, uh, uh, involved laborers and thinking about, you know, accompanied by support populations, people rotating in and out of laborious activities. And this mound was constructed um, for the burial of uh, to judge from the grave goods, which are have been published um, uh, uh, by members of our uh, of the research team, with Lauren Woodfin and Renata Hollow and so forth. Um, this guy was important, and he died, and he was buried fairly quickly. Um, and so we can kind of relate ritual um, and labor and the tool set uh, through um, an energetic analysis, which incorporated um, expertise and you know involvement. Uh, it's really what you might call a 360 degree kind of study and incorporation of, uh, uh, of uh, artifacts and even folklore um, uh, and all the sources, right, that we can get our hands on government statistics, everything, right, um, to kind of reconstruct uh, some of these conditions and how, again, uh, a model of how these activities may have occurred given certain factors and conditions, right? My name is Tyler Wolford. I am a PhD student in medieval studies. I work on the archaeology of late antique settlements and monasticism. Um, my question um, specifically actually has to do with um, Chenli Kinese and, and Cappadocia, um, sort of maybe in, in, in general, but this, this notion that um, you talked a lot in your article about how local knowledge, uh, they probably had the local knowledge of quarrying these from the construction of their own homes. Um, or the construction of other buildings. So to quarry a rock is also to possibly build another structure and rock cut architecture. So, and I, and I know that there were quarries specifically designated, but based on the potential of this sort of double duty of both uh, excavating to have blocks to build a church and to then possibly be building one of these courtyard complexes at the same time. How does this affect our model or the implication of it when an activity might potentially sort of serve two purposes at once? That's a great question. Thanks. Um, so the basic one of the basic distinctions that energetics um, has made um, is uh, between uh, monumental architecture, which in this case is distinguished by um, unusual uh, scale uh, materials uh, and quantities really of labor or highly differentiated and specialized uh, uh, technical, uh, technically expert forms of labor. 
with, on the other hand, um, juxtaposed with domestic or vernacular architecture. Um, because in most pre-industrial cultures, and this is a distinction made by Henry Glassie in his book, Vernacular Architecture, uh, I believe 1992, um, uh, that most people in pre-industrial cultures build their own houses. Um, and that, that is, they develop an expertise with locally available materials um, uh, to build the structures that they themselves live in, and that these structures um, can be uh, uh, constructed or built in most societies by a family or a family and their social network, people that can come together to help build houses for one another. Um, and so at Chan Achilles, and of course, you know, that differentiation of skill is itself um, locally, culturally, historically contingent, right? So in Cappadocia, for instance, we have um, evidence for uh, uh, both houses in um, that are rock cut at the Chonlikilise settlement. Um, that is, they are um, uh, they are carved into uh, outcroppings um, uh, to uh, basically, you know, create fairly, in some cases, um, large um, enclosures or collections of rooms that are underground that have openings to the outside. So we have these subterranean rock cut um, domestic structures. Um, and then we also have evidence of houses that are constructed with masonry. These are side by side in settlements. And so the application or then, you know, the consideration that we can make for um, the construction of Chan Lachilise is that by extension, people um, constructing or with domestic architecture, um, uh, let's back up, there is overlap in materials, right, between the Chanlachilise, a monumental church, and domestic architecture within the same settlement. So you have the potential, that is, for what we might call non-specialized, non-specialist, or outside expert labor being brought in for the church, because the technologies of church construction here, some of them are shared with domestic architecture within the same settlement. We are moving with that question, Ben Anderson, again, um, from questions about the sort of methodological mm. capacities and limitations of the analysis of a particular building to the kinds of conclusions that might be drawn, or at least hypotheses that might be formulated about social organization. Um, it seems to me a, a crucial distinction that you made. You also used it yesterday evening in your lecture as the key distinction between quote-unquote vernacular and uh, monumental architecture. Vernacular architecture is something that can be done um, as part of a standard skill set that most members of the community would possess and it doesn't require organization beyond a family unit, possibly quite an extended family unit, um, but nevertheless uh, something below the level of what we usually think of as, as society, um, uh, with a capital S, whereas monumental construction requires some form of organization and also, let's say, coercion uh, or persuasion insofar as if you have a project that you want to build, you need to convince people who are not your kin and who may not benefit directly from the construction of a particular monument that, in fact, it is in their best interest um, to give their labor the thing that you're measuring with the energetics analyses. So I'd like to pull out 
um, a claim that you make towards the conclusion of the Chungul Korgan article. Uh, this is, I think, as close as this article comes to making a claim about the social organization of uh, the Kipchak uh, state, if we want to call it a state. Um, you and your co-authors write, at Chungul Korgan, the scale of differential access to labor, and perhaps in your answer you could explain first what you mean by a scale of differential access to labor on a limited basis, might be compared with construction events in chieftain-level societies of Hawaii, Teotihuacan, Vietnam, and the Maya region. What does that mean? In other words, you claim that there is a particular um, model that suggests uh, the requirement of a particular kind of organization, and that this provides us with a lever or a means to move outside of the Eurasian step and to compare this construction event at Chungul Korgan uh, with things that happen in very different places and times that may share something here referred to as a chieftain-level society? Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. Thanks, Ben. So uh, by differential access to labor, right, we're thinking about um, the, the capacity of uh, designing or a patron agent um, for um, uh, to uh, the capacity of that of that organizing agent or person to organize uh, labor at various scales and across various durations. So the idea in this case, right, is that there is a substantial difference um, in uh, uh, the quantities of labor that are consumed for various types of structures. And so, for instance. Um, uh, we might compare, um, you know, the pyramids, let's say, um, that, uh, which is, you know, the subject of endless speculation in terms of how much labor was consumed in, in the construction of that building, but it's clearly a monumental work, right? Um, and we know over, let's say, some of the 10 to 20 years, um, versus a mound like the Chungul Kurgan, um, which we uh, have climatic constraints that limit the duration of the construction activities. We know it didn't take 20 years to build it. We know it took about a summer at most, if not less than that, within 15 to 30 days, it's thought, even hypothetically. Again, we're modeling a range of conditions under which labor might occur. Um, at the longest scale of time, the longest duration of time, it took, let's say, 150 days for that initial activity of building the parts of the mound before the insertion of the burial. Um, then we're only talking about potentially 15 or 20 people that are involved in that scale of activity. However, because we have pollen evidence from the cup and um, even some of the stratigraphy in the site, it's thought that these were, um, that the, the, uh, there was a mound, or pardon me, a ditch that's dug around the site, construction of croissant-shaped um, kind of ramparts, um, and then the insertion of the burial uh, it's uh, conceivable that this happened relatively quickly after the, the death of the individual. So if we say 15 to 30 days, then this means translated through labor rates, potentially 80 to 160 people working with a support population. Let's say we multiply that number by five. Basically, we're not talking about any more than 1,000 individuals that had to be present on site under optimal conditions. So um, with 1,000 people, under this kind of labor configuration and the configuration of time, 
that is indicated um, archaeologically from other evidence that we have on the site, right? This puts us on a scale of comparison with other published studies from other parts of the world that indicate these kind of a lower, or what we might say, you know, a chiefdom in this case, uh, kind of a middling state of political formation between collaborative households and a state building something like a pyramid, right, in which you have thousands upon thousands conceivably working over much longer durations. So it's in this sense um, that we can make um, kind of more global analytical comparisons with the data of other published projects that have engaged in uh, similar work. And it's cool because again, so this, um, you know, the Mediterranean, uh, Mediterranean architecture can be kind of integrated into these um, global questions about political formation and scale through this type of research, which has been accomplished in places like Vietnam and Hawaii and Central America. There is recent data within the last five to 10 years, sophisticated analyses um, uh, published especially in places like the Journal of Archaeological Science. Um, it's published a number of these sorts of studies. So um, yeah, I think that the potential for uh, kind of comparative analysis of um, uh, you know, the, the requirements of monumental constructions in various times and cultures uh, uh, is um, of great interest. Um, just plant again, thanks. So um, after you just discussed comparative studies, I want to ask a question about um, particularities in monumental buildings and attitudes towards labor. And so thinking about moving from energy to ideology a little bit mm -hmm. and the investment um, in buildings in the ancient Mediterranean. And so your second paper maps this trajectory from the Roman Euergetism to the kind of family unit as, as um, having major investments in building. Um, and one of the issues or relationships that kind of hangs over these programs in the ancient Mediterranean and you know, economic and social history, I think, is the relationship between these massive investments in building and what you call the kind of technological shelf that remains more or less um, static so that we can apply the same types of capacities to people um, back into the past. And um, so I'm wondering what you know, energetics or your case studies and your um, research methods can tell us and how you would weigh in on this relationship between status and then the relationship between efficiency and attitudes towards technology in the past and ancient Mediterranean specifically? Mm, that's a great question. So, okay, in the first place, I would say, you know, we're lucky in the Mediterranean um, that we have so, so many, um, you know, occasionally uneven and uh, uh, problematic, but nevertheless, we have a lot of written sources that also tell us about status of labor, right? So we're not, this is a case where we're not entirely reliant on a physical examination of building structure to give us information about attitudes to labor, right? Um, and about cultural configurations of uh, specialization and hierarchy necessarily. Um, so um, uh, Robert Osterhout in his book, Master Builders of Byzantium, right, outlines the shift from a theoretical education for architects uh, that was typical of Roman and late antiquity 
that moves into the world of the master builder of Byzantium, who was uh, trained in a workshop environment of apprenticeship and um, you know, gained, literally learned the ropes, as we say, of construction, um, setting out ropes for the modulus of buildings being a standard part of uh, construction in the, um, really from the transitional period, we would say, like, let's say, sick from the seventh century onwards into the medieval period. Um, so, you know, um, and Master Builders of Byzantium and Bob's book, right, he really traces this evolution, um, I think, pretty effectively. That said, um, again, you know, we can compare individual buildings to see how um, the same forms may be replicated under very different conditions of material and labor organization. So, um, again, pointing back to the Chanli Kilise case, um, that's in the um, forthcoming article with Costis and Bill, right, um, that Constantinopolitan, uh, the Chalmers say um, mimics features of Constantinopolitan architecture, um, particularly with um, the recessed brick technique, um, as it's called, um, and features of masonry construction. And we have a lot of, um, uh, the, well, the Chalmers say kind of adopts the skin of a Constantinopolitan structure. So it has um, mixed courses of stone uh, with brick, um, but we see a very high proportion of, um, uh, of a rubble core in relation to the exterior masonry facing. And so this has the effect here of devolving um, uh, more, um, you know, very simple, uh, technically simple uh, uh, labor of basically just chopping, hacking up rock into small bits and then be laid in mortar, right? That that constitutes a relatively high proportion of the actual volume. This rubble, the rubble core of Chanlikilise constitutes um, a relatively high proportion of the actual volume of the building materials themselves. And so in this way we can say, right, or energetics becomes useful in that it allows us to go beyond simply the drawn uh, plan uh, or elevation of a building that may present an impression, an aesthetic impression, uh, uh, but actually relies on very different configurations of material and labor from place to place, if that makes sense. So even in this way, kind of thinking about center periphery relationships. Um, Kathleen again. Um, I'm sort of, I'm, I'm wondering about sort of the two different case studies we looked at in some depth. Um, the Kurgan example and the example of the Byzantine church. And they seem to me quite different. And I think you would have to use a, quite a different approach to using energetics for each one. So with, with the Kurgan, everything is very locally sourced. I mean, that you have to assemble all of your workers, right, in this one place. So the, the scale, at least in terms of space, is quite small. Whereas with the Byzantine church, you are importing brick right which maybe was just bought and yes you have the transport costs and all that but i mean there isn't the brick at chanli kili say was locally produced oh, okay well but i think it's mentioned in the in the, the brick was transported transport. in the middle byzantine period right yeah correct. so like at gariaza we have uh, petrological evidence that the clay would came from beds in the marmara yeah this is published by james morgenstern uh, and uh in the istanbul portion series and 
um, was transported from Marmara to the southern coast of Antioquia. So there right. is movement of brick, which is a low-cost product because it's right. a prestige value from Constantinople. Right. So, but so there's this sort of dispersal of labor, and this is not a sort of, um, you know, vertically integrated, um, you know, process, right? Like they're pulling from all these different uh, sources where, you know, we have sort of economies of scale, right? And in, in some places, um, you might be, you know, buying a ton of marble from. Exploit. So how do we sort of factor in who's doing the labor? Um, you know, how is this all being assembled on the site, right? Um, right. So, well, I would say that both the Chongo Kilose and the Chongo Kurgan are, in fact, both very locally sourced okay. projects. So um, you have a tough, for the Chongo Kilose, and again, this is reliant on um, Osterhout's uh, published survey and Dumbarton Oaks series, big book. Uh, on the Chonlikilise in that settlement, um, that there is a tough quarry located along the ridge about one kilometer to the north of the church. Limestone for the mortar could actually be hacked out. There was a limestone outcropping just above the church. Mm -hmm. So this is actually, you know, one contributing factor to why a large uh, proportion of rubble and mortar core is an efficient alternative because you get part of the mortar right from the limestone that you burn for, for the lime. Literally, you just chop it up at the top of the hill and it rolls down towards the church at the site of construction. So you're actually going super local um, in this way. The brick, uh, there haven't been petrological analyses done, but there have been clay beds identified from a stream that runs, uh, it's about, it's a, a kilometer or so um, downhill, um, a ways away from the site. But it's, so it's possible, at least, yeah. that if they were using the most proximal sources of clay, that it could have been close. However, yes, we do have these middle Byzantine examples uh, of uh, the importation of brick from longer distances. I think, I mean, this is really a major, um, you know, difference with, um, obviously, a major difference with Roman and late antique construction, right, in which materials are sourced at considerable distances, um, right? Um, and uh, you have you do have an integration of um, various sectors of the economy that can contribute highly specialized right highly specialized processed products um, like marble um, sculpture and revetment um, sourced from all over the Roman Empire right this was a sign of Imperium that you could walk literally on a marble map of of uh, uh, you know of territory right with marbles sourced from Africa and from Greece um, uh, from Italy. So that's, you know, a difference that fades out um, from place to place, but especially in the medieval period. In late antiquity, so one study that I didn't show you, and actually now I regret that I just didn't send it to you also, um, that I'm waiting on, is a, a one, a comparison of the uh, 6th, 7th century building in Cappadocia with Chandlakilise, and then with the Seljuk Karavanserai. So looking, making a comparison, energetic comparison, um, between three buildings at, of different times on the same landscape. So looking at changes, right, in the configuration of materials and labor, uh, really within, gosh, 40 kilometers of one another, let's say. Um, and then another study, actually, that compares 13th century buildings of the Seljuk Karavanserai, the Church of Constantine Lips, the South Church of Constantine Lips in Constantinople, and the Kurgan. Um, and... In the Cappadocia um, comparison, the Church of Kizilkilise, uh, which is at Sibirhusa, 
there we see a longer range movement of materials in that the closest limestone for mortar is at a distance of some 30 kilometers. So you, um, right, and there that imposes some constraints again on how we think about the building process. So it, for instance, it doesn't make sense that you would move whole limestone from the quarry to burn it into lime at the church, right? You're going to burn the lime near the place where you quarry it and move it as quick lime, right? Um, and so, you know, in this sense, right, we can think about how those um, um, factors of distance uh, may have affected uh, labor organization on site, right? On the other hand, so that's Kizilkili say you have lime is 25 kilometers away, um, and the uh, uh, tuff that's used, um, uh, or pardon me, actually it's red sandstone there that's used for the church um, is about a kilometer away. Um, so thinking about, you know, that's kind of one resource geography for construction there. On the other hand, the Seljuk Karavanserai that's constructed, that I looked at there, the Azakarahan, um, there you have the primary building material is uh, uh, quarried 10 kilometers away. And that's a massive construction. Um, and so in that case, you're imposing um, considerable uh, uh, obligations for, for transport labor, right? Simply on the movement of your primary building material. And this is very different than either the late antique construction uh, or the middle Byzantine construction uh, of Chan say. Um, it's interesting there in the case of the Azakarahan too, um, that you have a fairly similar proportion of rubble to ashlar masonry in the construction of walls uh, in that uh, building. So the Byzantine, there's a continuity uh, potentially of um, kind of hierarchy of proportions of labor um, uh, as related to wall construction from the Byzantine to the Seljuk, um, but the transport factor is vastly different. You're on a completely different scale, right? When you're thinking about having to move your primary building material in tough several, uh, you know, thousands cubic meters of tough, uh, like 10 kilometers, right? Um, and there's a great project, by the way, which I should mention, Quarryscapes, um, which uh, has done work in Greece and in Anatolia, um, identifying and studying uh, historical quarries. Um, and so they were able to identify the Azakarahan uh, quarry. So to continue maybe on this discussion of transportation of materials, <coughs> you had mentioned um, in your article the use of GIS mapping. Um, I wonder if you could elaborate more on sort of the use of GIS in general in energetics and, and what it can do and how it affects changes, perhaps the application of the model. Sure. So um, I haven't done least cost path analysis um, uh, myself, but I've been really interested in it looking at examples from Mesoamerica mm -hmm. and North America, right? And so the idea there um, is that, of course, uh, in, well, huh, fortunately in Anatolia, I've been working mostly in places that are very flat. So it hasn't <laughs> been necessary to think about slope and relief as a factor mm -hmm. in transportation. Um, the Ukrainian step is also very flat. Um, so in any case, if you're working in areas that have high relief, 
right, um, that have very steep um, inclines one way or the other, going up or going down, right, it, uh, you know, behooves us to consider that as a feature of transport geography. And so GIS, um, uh, you can run uh, uh, an analysis which will basically set the fastest path or the cheapest path, let's say, uh, between two or more points. Um, and so if you are considering the movement of stone from a quarry to a building site um, over long distances, right, um, then uh, this uh, type of analysis would be uh, practicable um, to, again, consider uh, the, you know, the least laborious way of getting from point A to point B. And so this kind of brings us back to the whole um, earlier comment um, about um, the energetics creative models, right? That we are um, not trying to reconstruct the historical, you know, the past in its reality or something like this. Again, we are trying to um, uh, create a model uh, that shows how things may have happened under a range of conditions. Um, and right, we're creating scenarios for kind of um, tools for thinking, let's say, uh, about how uh, structures uh, came together. And we can only model uh, where it's, you know, most um, beneficial and it's easiest, uh, most, well, that's not the right word. Um, we can model efficiency. We can model conservatively, right, um, in that we can think about the best case scenarios because anything beyond that stretches to infinity, right? Um, that things can be endlessly inefficient, but we can look at the best cases um, and um, the most optimal scenarios, basically. Again, under a range of conditions, we can say, well, it could you know, maybe stretch from, um, you know, um, from point A to point B along a spectrum that we um, can constrain in various ways. Um, in, for instance, seasonal or climatic factors on the duration of building, stuff like this, right? Um, so, right, so we can we model things um, conservatively and it kind of speaks to that. I'd like to shift a little bit to labor as such. Labor has thus far been sort of uh, an assumed constant in yeah. our conversation, but we haven't said very much about different kinds of labor. Yeah. Um, Jordan, as you mentioned, the lecture that you gave last night was part of a, uh, the first lecture in a series that's been organized this year through SIAMS and through the Hirsch Postdoctoral Associate, Dana Bardolf, on the archaeology of labor. Um, it seems to me, although I'd be really interested to learn that I was wrong about this, that the kind of modeling you're doing ultimately, just as it cannot reconstruct a, a historical event, also cannot tell us, for example, whether labor that is free or unfree in the construction of a particular building. Um, the distinction between, again, vernacular and, and monumental architecture seems interesting to me here because, of course, um, we would assume that in family units you might not like to do your chores, but the work that you do you understand is benefiting yourself and those who are immediately related to you. Work on monumental projects it's going to be a harder sell. Um, we can imagine that uh, people might be you know, coerced in various means or paid, right? So there's also the potential of uh, some form of, of alienation from one's labor. 
And Kathleen's question also got to this, I think, in an interesting fashion, uh, that these more complex, or rather more geographically dispersed Roman late antique projects necessarily require some kind of uh, commodity form. So it's not going to be somebody who is immediately uh, engaged in the project to build an imperial bath complex somewhere uh, to quarry the porphyry that might be used for the columns or for the inlays. That's somebody, um, you know, the, the transport of that material is not part of the project itself. It's a service that's on offer. Yeah, it's a kind of commodity concept. form yeah, yeah. Uh, within the society at large. So that's perhaps one way that we can, that seeing these more complex projects involve a certain, a, a different, and require a different relationship between the, the labor of particular individuals and the products of their labor. But if we're really focusing on these kinds of local projects, it's not something that we can necessarily get at, the means by which people are being convinced and that they should spend their time and exert their energy in a particular fashion. I'd be interested if you think that's true or if there is a way of getting at the, uh, the, the nature of, of labor, the, the means through which it's extracted, let's say, by particular individuals in a society. And if it's not something we can get at with energetic modeling, is it nevertheless a factor that we can use to think with the models that are developed through energetics? In other words, what kind of difference would it make uh, in the study of a particular building, whether the labor was freely offered paid or otherwise coerced? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think, you know, short answer is no. Energetics can't tell us that, right? It can't tell us uh, the means by which labor is extracted um, from a society. Um, as a late antique uh, Byzantine person, though, you know, I, I would point uh, to a couple things. So one, um, you know, we have lots of references in hagiography to uh, the collective uh, construction of churches, for instance, what and you know the life of Nicholas of Sion, things like this. Um, so you know we do have evidence um, whether you know those are um, you know the uh, proud proclamations or kind of um, you know recommendations of church fathers. They're like, look at what this community did. You know, you all should come together and help too. Like, wouldn't that be special? Um, so you know we do we have indications like this. However, we might read them. Um, uh, optimistically or cynically, I suppose, of uh, the collective organization of labor to build monumental things like churches. Um, you know, uh, on the other hand, um, still in staying in kind of late antiquity, right, we have evidence for groups of, you know, highly specialized master craftsmen like the Isaurian builders who are moving um, from place to place. And so it's been thought that, again, kind of falling back on more traditional architectural historical um, techniques that we may be able to identify features of construction that are related to the movement of particular workshops, right? And um, and could think about. I mean, I think this is something that's fascinating. You know, um, uh, even to do kind of efficiency studies or labor studies of the standard techniques of Roman late antique wall construction, just by comparison, that that would be an excellent experimental project um, for thinking about some of these issues. Um, and then, so, okay, we have specialized wandering uh, itinerant craftsmen, special, highly specialized like the Isaurian builders. We have collective labor that's attested, um, uh, collectivized uh, labor. Um, and then we also have what's called Castro Patissia, um, which is a government-imposed form of corvée labor, which is 
um, labor, and this is a, a common feature of um, state formations at various scales, of, uh, uh, but a feature of you know, coercive centralized states, um, that you contribute a certain number of days per year. And this is basically a form of tax. And so the quantities of time that are given uh, vary from society to society. So 120 days in feudal Europe. Um, uh, there are Roman sources, I believe, that can put that number anywhere between 30 and 50. I'd have to double check that. Um, but Castro Patissia, as the name would suggest, right, castle building. This is also thought to relate to uh, roads and bridges and other forms of infrastructure. And it actually is a question to my mind, it's something I've um, talked about a bit with colleagues, um, is in the Byzantine world, were churches thought of as infrastructure per se, right? Are these, and indeed, I would think that the answer maybe leans towards yes, that they are seen as an essential part of um, a community's kind of architectural uh, setup. And so I also, I work a lot on um, water and on earthquakes, um, other features of environmental history. And so, I'm, you know, looking through the accounts of cities as they're rebuilt, the first thing that goes back up after you have an earthquake, it's the walls, the roads, and the church. So by that measure, right, we might include, um, you know, mandatory extractions of labor uh, for things like church construction in the late antique and Byzantine world. I'd like to thank you, Jordan, for sharing your work and for uh, discussing with us. Uh, I'd like to thank you, Jordan, for sharing your work and for discussing it with us. I'd like to thank Jess Plant, Kathleen Garland, and Tyler Wolford uh, for posing questions, Ailish Manahan for organizing and recording the podcast, and everybody who's listening for your attention. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Radio Siams, a podcast of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. Our next podcast will be announced soon on siams.cornell.edu. This episode of Radio Siams was recorded in Cornell's new Material Culture Laboratory, directed by Professor Astrid Van Oyen. This lab will be used by Van Oyen to conduct research related to the excavations she directs in Tuscany, Italy, the Marzuolo Archaeological Project by graduate students working on object-based research, and by classics faculty for hands-on teaching in courses with a material culture component. Thanks to Professor Van Oyen, Classics, and Siams for letting us use this space. Radio Siams is produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. You can see all AAA-sponsored podcasts at AmericanAnthro.org. Thanks for listening.